Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1. And the series that we're going to do this quarter, I'm, I'm calling it Law and Covenant. But what we're really essentially, in one sense, we're trying to answer this one question. The moral law of God, a good summation would be the Ten Commandments, but just think the moral law of God, how is it supposed to be used in a Christian's life? Unfortunately, there's actually a lot of debate about this in in Christian circles. And so we want to try to go back to the Word and think about the moral law of God, what is its role in the Christian life. And so we're going to start out this morning looking at the covenant that God made with Adam in Genesis chapter 1. And so, uh, now, the word covenant doesn't even appear in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, which is what we're going to be looking at today, but the concept certainly does. And if you go to Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, don't do that now because it'll be too hard to find. It's one of those little short minor prophets that you have to uh, flip around or go to the table of contents to find it, but you can do it later. Just jot down Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. It does speak there of the covenant that God made with Adam. But you see the concept, certainly. Now, when I say the word covenant, let me just give you my personal definition. It's just this. A solemn relationship with conditions and consequences. A solemn relationship with conditions and consequences. Let's say, hypothetically, you parked your car, you got here a few minutes early, as you were walking into the restaurant, maybe you've never been here before, and Somebody was walking out, and you said, hey, how you doing? Did you have a good lunch? Uh, what would you order? Tell me, you got any recommendations for me? And you had a three-minute conversation with a guy, and he said, my name's Jim, and I had the catfish. It's great. You said, okay, thanks, and you walked in. Technically, you might say you've got a relationship with Jim. It's an acquaintance now, but that's not a solemn relationship. It's not a serious relationship. We, we don't use the word covenant much in modern-day America, but there is one place that we tend to still use the word covenant, and and what do we reference if we're talking about covenant in modern-day America? Okay, homeowners association. All right, Rob must be having some problems with his or somebody. Uh, but other than that, what do most normal people use the word covenant for? Ma- marriage, okay? You think about marriage. It's essentially, what is a marriage? It's a relationship, but it's a very unique kind of relationship. It's a solemn relationship. Even as much as we have watered down marriage in our culture, you still can't get married totally on a whim. There still has to be, I think, a legal document and a notary public. So we've watered it down big time, but there's still something serious about it, solemn about it. And it has conditions, and it has consequences, okay? There are conditions. You, you don't just haphazardly go into marriage. You choose somebody. You're, you're looking for somebody that's meeting the right conditions. And then there are consequences. You take vows, in a sense, those are the conditions, right, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And if people keep the vows, there will be blessed consequences. They, they ought to be pretty happy if both people are serious about taking the vows. But if one or both break the vows, there will be consequences, maybe the worst being divorce. Okay, so um, we want to look at today the covenant that God made with Adam. And some, you know, different theologians will call this different things. Some people will call it the covenant of creation. Some people call it the covenant of works. Some people call it the covenant of life. Doesn't as much matter if you like one of those the best. Okay, but let's start in Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Then God said, 
let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the first thing that we see here is that God is making man his own image. If you read all of chapter 1, there's six days and God is creating everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the ocean. But then it's like when it gets to mankind, it slows down a little bit. It goes into depth. It's kind of trying to say this is the most important thing that God made. And why? Because we were made in God's image. What does that mean? The main thing that it means is we were made with a capacity for a spiritual, meaningful relationship with God. Okay? There might be some really smart animals at the Birmingham Zoo, but I guarantee you what you won't see, even if you go to the monkey cage or whatever your favorite uh, animal group is out there, you will not find a group of monkeys sitting around eating lunch, opening the Word of God, trying to say, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? They don't think that way. They don't have the capacity for that. They're not supposed to. And that's the essence of what it means to be in the image of God. It's family language. Like you ever, you ever seen a young man and maybe you knew his daddy growing up and you're like, man, he's the spitting image of his daddy. Now, we're not physically the spitting image of our daddy, but we're supposed to be in our character and our morality. We're supposed to be the spitting image of our daddy. And all human beings, you can go to Acts chapter 17 when Paul was preaching in Athens and one of the things he said is, we're all God's offspring. So even today, lost people are still the offspring of God, the creatures of God, and made in his image with a special relationship with him. Now, look down to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Up until this point, as God's making stuff, he looks at it, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when he makes man and he makes woman, he said, it's very good. It's extra special. It's all coming together. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, we know... It's just logical, but even if you want a verse, you can write this one down and go look at it later, and you probably don't have to because you probably know it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 speaks that God, he never gets tired. He never goes weary. He's never exhausted. He never needs a nap. He never needs to sit, sit down and catch his breath for a minute. So what does this mean in the very beginning? Six days God works, on the seventh day he rested. It's more like the rest if you've been out cutting your grass all day, and maybe you love cutting the grass. It's exhilarating to you. And you get done and you want to sit down on the front porch and get a nice glass of iced tea or whatever your favorite beverage is. And you just want to look at the work of your hands. It's like, it looks good, the finished product. I enjoy it. Painting your house, whatever it is, when you finish and you say, I just want to sit back and enjoy. And in a sense, that's what God was doing. He made the whole universe and he sits back and he says, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And guys, even the Sabbath... (laughs) was made for mankind. God was modeling something that we're supposed to have one day out of seven where we sit back, we just rest, and we enjoy. Okay, now, this is an important note. A lot of, again, theologians will call this first covenant the covenant of works, which is not a bad reason to thing to call it, and I'll explain why they call it that in just a minute. I think it will become obvious. But some theologians say, you know, we don't really like to call it the covenant of works because it, 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 it can imply something that's a little bit wrong. Because Adam and Eve were not created into a neutral world, 
They weren't created into a neutral relationship where they had to work hard to earn all this good stuff. They were created into already a gracious relationship, right? I mean, they came into a world that was perfectly designed for the flourishing of mankind. They came in already getting lots of good blessings. They didn't start at neutral. They started in a good place, at a wonderful place. Too many times when Christians study Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we get way too caught up in the debate between evolution and not evolution and all that and six-day creation, which I'm not saying that's not important, but we can miss maybe the bigger, deeper truth was just this. God likes people, and God created the whole universe as a place of blessing and grace and goodness for all of us. So there's the covenant, okay? He's bringing us into relationship with him. Now, we said, what is a covenant? It's a solemn relationship with conditions and consequences. Let's look at the conditions, okay? So um, God makes this beautiful earth. And let me actually just read, go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in one sense, here, here, here is... The spiritual marriage vows of the covenant of creation is this. God says, you serve me, you work for me, but I will satisfy you. I'm going to be the greatest employer of all time. You're going to love working for me. Just pause and let's think about this for a second. I mean, one of the very first things he tells Adam and Eve is, you need to have babies. You need to have enough babies to populate the whole earth. Okay, and I don't want you to think too much about this. You might get distracted, all right? But just think about it with me for one second. God could have said, you know, the way that men and women are going to produce babies is they're just going to have like a little special handshake they do. They do that handshake, she gets pregnant, and it all works out. God came up with a much more exciting way for us to have babies, guys. He, he is for us. He wants us to be enjoying life. And so God says, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to make your life wonderful and joyful, but you have got to serve me. That's the condition. You've got to obey me. Go into chapter 2 and skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Even work, guys, is a blessing. Sometimes we wrongly think work came after the fall and work is miserable and I hate work. And I, but guys, and I think you guys know this. Done rightly, work is wonderful. I was meeting with a man yesterday, and he's got a cousin that's really suffering from a terrible depression. Uh, and so I was, he was asking me questions. I was trying to help him. And part of what he said is the guy just sits in his room all day, won't leave. He's 19 years old, still living with mom and dad. And I was like, I don't know all the problems, but I know part of the problem. Right? Men are made to work. Grow up and get a job. Move out and do something with your life. I'd be depressed if I was 19, just still living with mom and dad, never leaving the room. Because that's not the way we're wired. Work was a blessing, and God knew that. But guys, even here, there was a pro prohibition, what they couldn't do. But guys, notice, we can get caught up in the negative, but look at how verse 16 starts. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And sometimes we skip past 16 just to go to verse 17. 
but before God gave one no, he gave a thousand yeses. He said, every tree is yours. And literally in the Hebrew, listen, in Hebrew language, you didn't have exclamation points. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you had a couple of different ways you could do it. But one of the ways that you did it is you would just repeat the verb twice. And so literally in the Hebrew, what he says is, see all the trees of the garden? Devour, devour. Devour, devour. Have a feast, feast. Eat to your heart's content. Think about that. God could have made eating a very boring experience. Could he not? He could have said, the humans got to have fuel. They got to have nutrients. Let's just make some tree bark that's just packed with multivitamins. And once a day, Adam and Eve will go over to the tree bark. They'll break a piece off. They'll chew it. It won't taste good. They'll swallow it. That'll be it. But God didn't do that. I mean, he came up with all kinds of wonderful food for us to fuel our bodies. Again, I want us to see what I think the Bible wants us to see here is what a glorious relationship that he's called all humans in. It's like God saying, I want to bless your socks off. And yet, even in the beginning, before there was any sin on planet Earth, God said, there is this one tree, you can't touch it. You can't eat from it. That's what he literally said. Now, theologians to this day have tried to wrestle with, what was going on here? Why was there this one tree? I mean, it's almost like God was setting us up for failure. I mean, imagine if you had some of your kids or grandkids at the house and you're like, listen, I got you a bunch of toys, but there's also this nice shiny toy over here and whatever you do, don't touch this toy. I mean, what is any kid in the right mind going to do? Say, well, eventually, as soon as grandpa leaves the room, I'm definitely going after that toy. It, I mean, it must be the best if it's special. But from the very beginning, guys, it wasn't like this tree was poisonous or anything like that. It was just this, God saying, you got to remember in this relationship, I'm God, you're not. I'm the creator, you're the creature. I'm the master, you're the servant. And you got to trust me. you got to obey me. That's part of the condition is you submit to me. You submit, you serve, and if you stay in line, I am going to bless your socks off. Keep your finger here in Genesis. We're coming right back, but for just a second, flip over to Deuteronomy. So just a couple of books over to the right. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then skip down to verse 10. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. God's taking the people out of the slavery in Egypt. He's bringing them into the promised land. It's kind of Moses' last sermons to them before they get ready to enter into the promised land. And I want us to notice something that God says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's start in verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Guys, there's a principle in life that when we get blessed so much, even by God, even with spiritual blessings, they can go to our head and in some sense it's like we can become drunk on the blessings of God. And we can start to just kind of forget about God. And not that we become atheists, <laughs> But we just kind of ignore him. We just kind of push him to the sides of our life. I don't really need him to be at the center anymore. Look how great I'm doing. So God, partially having prohibitions in our lives, is a way to remind us, I'm God, you're not. 
Now, um, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. He's going to knock Adam up, wake Adam up, say, Hey, Adam, while you took a nap, I made a really big surprise for you, buddy. I mean, the, the gifts just keep getting better. God is doing all this in this relationship. And then skip down to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And this is telling us more than just about their marriage relationship. It's telling us about their relationship with God, with one another, with themselves. They had nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to fake. Everything in the world was perfect for them. They could just walk around. They didn't have to put on a coat outside because it was going to be too cold. They didn't have to wear armor. There was no enemies. They were perfectly safe. They were perfectly balanced. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but I think it's good speculation. The implication seems to have been that if Adam and Eve would have persevered long enough in obeying God, serving God, making babies, working in the garden, that at some point they could have gone to the tree of life, eaten from it, and they would have been kind of locked into perpetual holiness with God. It seems to be that's what happened with the angels. Some of the angels fell. Some of the angels persevered in obedience, and that's why you have a group of demons and a group of angels today, and there's no indication that more demons keep falling. But again, that's speculation, but uh, our best understanding is Adam and Eve probably didn't stay holy for longer than a day. Probably on the very first day, Satan came in. Okay, so point three, let's look at the consequences. Chapter three, verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Satan comes into the garden, and he is going to ruin this relationship. And he starts it. This is interesting. Notice this. If you go back through... uh, Chapter 2, it, the way that God is referred to is the Lord God. Look back at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, and Lord is Yahweh. When you see Lord in English translation in all caps, that's, Yahweh. that's God's covenantal name. It's like his married name. But when Satan comes along, notice, he doesn't refer to God as the Lord God. Okay, just again, look in the end of verse 1 there. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And he's trying to say, he's not a good husband. He's not a good spiritual husband. He's just a creator. He's just a tyrant. He's just an oppressor. And the the implication is, you know, God made this big garden, and he makes you work in it, and he won't even let you enjoy the fruit of your labor? What's wrong with this guy? He's very subtle, very, lots of insinuation. And Eve responds well at first. We, we can eat from any tree of the garden, you know, except that one tree, and we're not even allowed to touch that. And it's like she makes the command a little bit more serious than it was. And, and part of what Satan was trying to do was emphasize the strictness of God, the rigidness of God, and downplay his goodness. Okay? And then the last one's like, hey, you know why 
God doesn't want you to eat. It's like, he really doesn't want what's best for you. The implication is, there's some kind of special wisdom out there. I have it. God has it, but he won't let you have it. But you want what's best? You've got to break some rules and go get it for yourself. And really saying, God's not good. God's not loving. God's not trustworthy. God's not going to give you the best stuff in life. And guys, Sinclair Ferguson says about this, that that, human, that lie of Satan entered the human bloodstream, and to some degree, we're all still wrestling with it today. Let me give you a very practical example. I was doing a men's Bible study a few years ago, and uh, kind of guys my age and stage, and a friend of mine was in the group that I know very well, and we were going through Genesis 3, and one of the questions we asked was, in what way, practically in your life right now, are you doubting the goodness of God? And my friend, and he, he's not being arrogant, he's just being honest. He's like, I, I don't feel like I doubt the goodness of God at all. I don't feel like I struggle with that at all. Well, by the end of the Bible study, we were doing a little bit more accountability, and this guy said, you know, I've got to be honest with you guys, I've really been struggling a lot with pornography. And I know this guy good enough that I was able to go back to him and say, do you not see the connection? Why are you struggling with pornography? This guy's married. At some level, you don't trust the goodness of God. You don't trust that God's going to give you enough good gifts in marriage that you feel like you've got to go get it somewhere else. Guys, most of us, we're going to a good church. I'm not really worried that we don't have a lot of good theological furniture in our brains and that it's not in the right place. What I'm very concerned about myself and all of you as well is that the theological furniture in our heart is missing or not arranged in the right way. You understand what I mean by that? I mean, I, I bet, you know, if next week Eric shows up and he says, I'm passing out a theology exam and you got to get at least a 90% to show up for the, you know, you don't get your lunch if you don't pass. I bet you're all going to pass, okay? But if the Lord gave me, hey, Olin, I want to give you a practical theology exam. How are you doing in your practice? How are you doing in your life? My grade would be far lower than it would be on just the written intellectual exam. You understand? So think about that, guys. That would be a great thing to think about this week. In what way am I not practically trusting in the goodness of God and his relationship with me? Now, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. So sin ruins relationships, guys. It ruins relationships at the horizontal level with one another, and it ruins relationships at the vertical relationship with God. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. They used to be best friends, and now Adam is terrified of God. This is not like the worshipful fear of God. This is the sinful fear of God. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And I've pointed this out before, but it's important, guys. Imagine being a kid, okay, playing or something, and you hear your dad running down the stairs, and you think, maybe I did something wrong. You get scared. Why is he coming down the stairs? Is he angry at me? And then he gets there, and he's like, hey, I just heard you down here playing. I just want to come play with you. But that can be our response sometimes with God. It's like God's out to get me. And that was Adam and Eve's response. God wasn't coming in wrath that day for Adam and Eve. He was coming in mercy. So when he asked them, hey, guys, what'd you do? He's not a detective trying to solve a crime. He knew what they did. 
but he was trying to elicit a confession so he could show them more grace and mercy. But they were so warped by their sin and by the lies of Satan, and so are we sometimes, they didn't trust the goodness of God. They keep lying, they keep hiding, they keep minimizing. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, I said one of the ways you could emphasize something in the Hebrew is to double up the verb. Another way you could do it is you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. And if you want to not emphasize something, you put it at the end of the sentence. And look at what Adam says. It's really Eve's fault. And if if she needs a co-conspirator, it's really your fault, God. You should have never created her. She ruined everything. But I guess technically, I did eat. And Eve followed suit. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, they're misdirecting, right? They're focused on the symptoms rather than the roots. They're blame shifting. They're minimizing. And I just said, this would be a great thing to talk about around the table today. When you sin, what's your first gut reaction? How do you tend to hide? Maybe from others, maybe from God, maybe from yourself. How do you tend to minimize? How do you tend to blame shift? How do you tend to spin it and make it seem better than it really is? Um, But here's where I really want us to spend most of our time in the discussion around the table, guys. Practically speaking, (laughs) where is the place where we might go to church on Sunday morning and sing songs about the grace of God? And really feel something in our heart, a sense of delight. But practically, Monday through Saturday, where is it that our practice shows I don't really believe the goodness of God in my relationship with him as much as I should, as much as I say that I do. Now, a couple more thoughts and we're done. In verse 14, God does start to bring the cursed consequences for their sin. And he starts with Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Guys, even in the curse on Satan, the blessings for Adam and Eve start. Because Satan wanted to come in and capture Adam and Eve, in a sense, to follow him, just like the other demons were following him. But God says, notice at the beginning of verse 15, There's going to be war between you and the woman. You don't get her, Satan. She's not going to your side. You tried to get her, she's staying on my side. Now, it's going to be a bloody, lifelong battle. It's going to last 6,000 years or more. But at some point, she's going to finally have a great, 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 great grandbaby. And he's going to put an end to you. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Now, remember the marriage vows of the creation covenant were this. You serve me, and I'll satisfy you. And part of the curse that God put on Adam and Eve is women are going to tend to quit seeking to find the deepest satisfaction of their soul in God, and they're going to look for it in human relationships, and maybe mainly in family relationships, and it's never going to work. It's always going to backfire. 
And men are going to tend to find the deepest satisfaction for their souls in work and productivity. And look what I can do. Look what I can conquer. And it's never going to work. But guys, even in the curse that God put on man and woman, there's a gracious boomerang effect. Because it's a good thing that we go to work and we try to prove ourselves, make a name for ourselves, and it doesn't satisfy the deepest desires of our soul. And we say, what do I got to do? I got to go back to God. He's the only one that can really satisfy me. And God made provision for that as well. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. Now, at this point, they don't have any babies. But this is Adam taking a step of faith. Hey, I heard that promise you made us in verse 15, God, and I trust you again. I trust your goodness. I trust your plan. I'm going to go ahead and nickname my wife Mama. Even though we don't have any babies, I believe we're going to stay alive. You're not going to kill us, though we deserve to get killed. And we're going to have babies. He's putting his hope in the promised Messiah. In verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Guys, they were supposed to die that day. That's what God had said in the curse. But the death, in a sense, was postponed. Judgment was postponed. It was postponed to the cross. And they didn't die that day, but there was some little innocent animal, probably a lamb, that did get killed that day. So that God could say, listen, you sinned and now you feel naked and ashamed and you should feel that way. But your little fig leaf aprons and loincloths, they're not working for you. I'm going to slaughter an animal. I'll make you good clothes that will cover you, that will protect you. And it's a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ being shattered and slaughtered for the sins of his people so that we can get the royal robe of righteousness that only he deserved to wear. And we can be brought back into a covenant relationship with God and Savior. Technically speaking, guys, there's really only two covenants in the whole Bible. There's this covenant of works that they broke. And there's the covenant of grace where you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it starts right there in Genesis chapter 3. And praise God, it's still open to all of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself, I pray for everybody hearing this, that the truths that we know in our brains would sink down deeper into the basement of our hearts and burn and shine and have power to transform our lives, that we would obey you more practically and not out of drudgery and duty, but we'd obey you out of hope that you are a good God and you are going to satisfy us and you are going to bless us. Protect us from the evil one. Protect us from his lies. Protect us from trying to cover up our shame and keep us running back to Christ again and again to be saved, to be sanctified. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.